They say patience is a virtue, but I can wait as long as you do for a change. Call me insane, but that's my end. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Untelevised, the podcast, the podcast where we explore all things social change and we have a look at what we might want to change about society and what part we might all play in that change. My name's Viseo and my co-host is called Mona. Hi Mona, how are you this week? Hi Fazeo. Yeah, I'm I'm okay. I'm okay. I I'm not going to say that I'm tired because I feel like then it just gets very repetitive, but it is true. But otherwise, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm 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 good. I'm good. I can't believe we've kind of reached the end of a second season, essentially 20 episodes as you said that. That kind of really landed with me. Yeah, I'm I'm also not going to say I'm tired, but um definitely had an intense couple of weeks. Uh probably the most busy I've physically been in in the last 18 months <laughs> with school holidays starting and um, doing in-person workshops again. I've definitely lost my stamina for having young children um, running around, asking me questions, hugging me, pulling my hair, pulling my leg all day. So um, yeah, it's been <laughs> an interesting couple of weeks, but I'll join you in not complaining about being tired because it's nice to be doing what I love again after quite a long time. That is a good way of looking at it. Well, I don't think we'll... No, no children involved in the production of this episode, so I think... Um... <laughs> no, we'll be talking about them a little bit, but <laughs> none around us, yeah, so around thankfully us. <laughs> having a little break. So yeah, um, speaking of this episode, we've been exploring democracy for a while now. We've looked at it in theory. We've looked at it in practice, um, applying it to housing and workplaces. We've looked at the systems that it influences and that it's influenced by like our education system. And in all of these conversations, um, we and our guests have sort of agreed and pointed towards the idea that more participation is a good thing and something that we need in this country. Uh, we need more opportunities for citizens to participate in democracy directly. Uh, so we thought to round off our season and our exploration of democracy, we'll look at an example of direct participation, uh, that example being referendums. And we've only actually had three UK-wide referendums in UK history. Um, the most popular one, probably uh, Brexit, a word we all used to hear quite often until COVID replaced that conversation. Um, but yeah, let's jump into it because there's a lot to discuss in this episode and we'll talk about all of these terms I've just mentioned in our learn section. So let's jump into our learn section. Okay, so referendums. What are referendums? So as we explored in our democracy episode, the first of this season, there are different types of democracy. And what we have in the UK is a sort of like delegated democracy where we vote for um, a political party in our national elections and our general elections every four to five years. And then once we've elected them, the idea is that we sort of have given our trust to them and they run the country for those four to five years, pass policies, hopefully in line with the manifestos they had when they ran in the election and that we voted for them based on. Generally speaking, once we've done that, we don't really get 
like a sort of day-to-day say in every decision that, um, you know, that government makes. We've kind of already entrusted them with that decision-making power. However, a referendum is when one particular decision is actually put back to the public during those four to five years. And it is often a very specific question, like maybe what we might consider a yes, no kind of question, like, should Scotland be independent, you know, yes or no? And in the case of the most recent referendum we've had in the UK, should the UK um, stay or leave the European Union? So that's a referendum, a direct vote given back to the public um, by our government, by Parliament. as you will hear a bit more from our guests, you know, there maybe aren't the clearest systems for deciding which decisions go to referendum, but I will let him discuss that. Um, Brexit, as Fazeo said, uh, maybe a word that we just assume we definitely know inside out because we've heard it so much, but that was basically the last referendum we had in the UK. It was in 2016, and it Brexit just refers to the, um, to the term of whether Britain should or shouldn't stay in the European Union. The word is very cleverly made up by joining Britain and exit, making Brexit. (laughs) (laughs) Genius. (laughs) Yeah. I wonder who came up with that, actually, because they should get some kind of... It's kind of like a tabloid, you know, like tabloids making terms like Brangelina or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And I wonder if they anticipated how widely used that term would be Mm -hmm, when they, mm -hmm. like, probably quite absentmindedly just wrote it down somewhere. So this week, I spoke to Ralph Scott, a PhD student in politics at the University of Manchester, where his research focuses on analysing the educational divide in political attitudes and behaviours. Prior to this, Ralph worked as head of research and learning for Teach First, um, a large teaching, recruitment and training organization where he led on monitoring and evaluating um, the organization's programs and making recommendations for improvements. He was also prior to this research manager at The Challenge, a social integration charity um, where he kind of oversaw um, the organization's thought leadership. And prior to this, he was head of citizenship at the think tank Demos, um, where he led numerous policy research projects focused specifically on education, on youth engagement, and particularly democratic engagement. In many ways, the argument for kind of a general education, as in everyone having access to education up to a certain level, um, stems partly from the need for citizens, you need people who are voting to be educated enough to understand what's going on and vote according to their own interests, what they think is best for them, for the country, um, so, so particularly when you look at countries like the US, there's lots of early arguments for ensuring that the people who have the vote are well-educated. Um, being, I guess, one of the countries that first kind of took this step into democracy, even though their democracy was very limited in various ways, as in women and ethnic minority people not having the vote for well, hundreds of years afterwards. Um, but still, there, there's the kind of logic is there. To avoid people who uh, maybe couldn't read or write or... Um, you know, might not have uh, a full view of the world from being manipulated. Um, you need people to be well-educated so they can see through stuff, basically, and, and come to their own understanding of the world, the issues that matter to them, and vote on that basis. So in that way, um, in that way, education seems to be kind of really important. The question is, like, what 
you know what what things what are the things that people need to know what um, what is it that what what is the the role of the education system in equipping people to to be good citizens and to know you know to kind of understand the political system and so i guess you kind of asked the questions back at me so i guess what, <laughs> what is that education i mean you know do you feel that our i'm talking about the uk in this instance like do you feel that our current education system is designed to prepare people for meaningful democratic participation. And we did learn in our last episode that there are even quite a lot of different types of schools in the UK, mm. right? And you have our state school system, we have our private school system, and even within our state school system, we have variation. But if we were to look at maybe the national curriculum as a, as a guideline um, at present in the UK, like, is that even its agenda? Like, does it claim to do that? Does it succeed in doing that? I mean, so there are various bits, there are various kind of aspects of policy that um, require schools to do this, but in a way that's fairly vague and non, like non-specific. And the danger when you're asking schools to do so much, the danger when you're not specific um, is things can kind of be relegated or fall by the wayside or depend on someone in that school being really passionate about it. So the new Labour government tried to do something quite interesting on this where they tried to introduce a new subject and a whole new curriculum around citizenship um, and kind of define what that was. Um, an academic called Bernard Crick did loads of work on this um, to kind of basically come up with this idea of what people needed to know to be good citizens. Um, and in a way, they're learning from other countries that, that do this as a matter of course more. Uh, again, the US is an example where you have the, the kind of compulsory civics lessons. It varies by state. Um, basically because they were of the view that school wasn't doing anything like enough and was focused far too much on either doing things that were kind of economically useful so it would help people get a job or were thought to be academically valuable so things that people should know but not necessarily helping them to um you know to play a role in political and just general life in, in kind of contemporary britain so the citizenship curriculum did do that to some extent. I mean, there were various things that were successful about it and things that were less successful. I think it's always going to be hard introducing a new subject and training a whole load of new teachers to, to teach something. Um, but there are still citizenship teachers in the education system. They're often, uh, there's very little time dedicated to it in schools and it's put in with a load of other things related to kind of um, uh, the kind of PSHE topics or I think there's this there's this duty called um, social, moral, spiritual, and cultural uh, development. Um, so that's it. Kind of all ends up being put together, and it will differ across different schools. Um, I mean, th and th and the result of that is um, it, the school system almost certainly isn't doing enough. I, you know, in my view, to kind of prepare um, it, within the UK to prepare people to be uh, active citizens and to know, you know when it comes to a general election to get to make sure they're registered to vote to kind of weigh up the parties and go okay this is the person who i probably want to vote for in this in this in this contest yeah you know we heard from an insanely passionate teacher in our last um, episode and actually as you say it's interesting like how they've kind of chucked a lot of those everything that seems to be extracurricular or you know not academic together and like actually they're such massive things like you talk about moral spiritual personal like these are things we all battle with like for our whole lives and to kind of put them into one subject together like the teacher we spoke to last week a secondary school teacher he's primarily a religious studies teacher but it seems like mm. a lot of these subjects kind of were landing with him um I mean he was doing such an amazing job of it that he made my colleague want to return to school but I feel like it's unfortunately just not the case in so many instances um yeah 
and and I guess um the the only thing I'd add is that the the reason why it's important that schools do this is because um I guess you end up with a huge like like with everything that you're trying to address through schooling and kind of public services if you leave it just to people on the uh, like on their own or uh, um under their own steam you end up with a huge amount of inequality where um some parents and some kind of family settings will be highly political or at least political enough that um, you'll get a good understanding of what's happening in the political system. You know, you'll probably end up with lots of biases as well because everyone has their own like inclination. Um, but, but you'll at least know, you know, um, what an MP is, how you vote for an MP, kind of where the different, what, what the local council does, what um, national government does, all this kind of stuff. If you grow up in the right environment, I mean, I definitely, you know, that was the environment I grew up in, which was like a fairly political environment. And so um, I developed both an interest in and an understanding of politics in that way. What the academic research on this has found is where you have a good civics curriculum, um, where people don't grow up in that kind of environment, the civics, the, the kind of citizenship curriculum can address that. So it means that there's, there's less of a kind of knowledge and um, confidence gap between people from different family backgrounds um, at the end of school and then later on in life. So they're more likely to vote where you have a good solid curriculum. Um, and in this country, we don't have that. So you do end up with quite a lot of people being disengaged from politics um, in a way that could be addressed through just a change of policy, basically. Yeah, you know what, I actually, when I was at Demos, um, I remember going to do some focus groups um, with schools across the country to understand young people's understanding of politics and like going to a private school in London in a, you know, an urban area, like near the, you know, the hub of the country and like, you know, privately educated students and their political knowledge was insane, those kids at like 14 or whatever. And then I went to a couple of deeply kind of underfunded state schools in like Barnsley and Liverpool. And I remember the kids looking at me and going, what does politics mean? What does government mean? I don't know who the prime minister is. I don't know who that is. You know, it was kind of that level of disparity. And that was yeah. such a shock for me because like you, I grew up in a, in a very political environment. So I had never, ever even conceived of that without growing up in a privileged environment. I grew up in a very political environment. So it was kind of mm. completely new to me. Um, so I guess, I mean, well, kind of on that. So we we wanted, you know, we wanted to kind of take like a tangible example of some kind of like political activity in this country to kind of yeah. get in on. And um, we've covered quite a few things in, in episodes, citizens assemblies and how you run as a candidate. We did an episode on what it even means to run as a candidate. But we wanted to focus on referendums in this episode and particularly, I guess, Brexit. Like it, I know we've all forgotten about Brexit because of COVID, but there was a time where it felt <laughs> like it was never going to go away. But I mean... That's like maybe, I guess, the most recent example we have of this idea of like a very direct, like we learned about direct democracy in previous episodes, where you kind of, you know, where the public gets to say on something very specific and directly as opposed to just voting for a party and waiting five years and seeing kind of what they carry out, right? So um, from what, you know, from what I understand, there's higher, there was certainly higher participation in our Brexit vote than there is in a lot of our um, general elections. Um, I'm not sure if that's the case in general for referendums, but do you find that there is something around, yeah, giving the public a very specific thing to vote on that's maybe quite a heightened issue rather than saying, here's this political party that does loads of things and, you know, it's going to be five years of your life and it's actually all, people would need to know a lot to vote mm. in a general election compared to a referendum. Is that sort of the case? I mean, I guess well, the first thing to say with referendums, at least within the British context, is they're pretty unusual. Like, it doesn't feel like that having 
uh, you know, I'm in my 30s and there's been so many referendums <laughs> during the period in which I've been eligible to vote. But if you look back over the last 100 years or 200 years, um, generally speaking, in Britain, politicians have not liked the idea of referendums compared to um, other countries in the world, um, partly because um, they're off they've often been used by people who... Um, who are already in power to kind of reinforce their so like Napoleon was a fan, for example, and there are other kind of more uh, other kind of um, dictator figures from the 20th century you can look to. And that was who um, po politicians kind of throughout the 20th century generally steered clear because they were like they saw it as a tool to be used by um, those in power to, I guess, force people to take uh, a position on an issue that maybe they hadn't thought about. Um, and generally, like, I thought about up till that point, or at least not in a lot of detail, um, and the hope that they could kind of steer them towards their point of view, basically, and therefore get a mandate from the people for a particular issue that maybe they wouldn't have got through uh, the kind of existing or conventional um, political means. Um, so that, I mean, that's the, one, the first thing is one of the reasons why referendums might be popular, or at least turnout might be high, is they don't happen that often. And there is something quite appealing about the simplicity of a, of a direct choice where you know that your vote, um, you don't have to engage with all the issues relating to who the candidates are, who the parties are, what they stand for, the fact you might like this aspect of one party and that aspect of another party and the same for candidates in your local area. Um, that's, that becomes quite tricky because then you have to make quite a difficult choice of trading off all these different things and go, actually, I'd probably go for this person, but I'm doing it because I don't want this person to win. Um, you know, you end up having to, to make quite a lot of psychological compromises, which, is, which can be quite difficult. Whereas in a referendum, you can go, uh, you can end up taking quite a clear position because you're asked to take a really clear position. I think the issue with the Brexit referendum and often with referendums is, tends to be that in the end, the political decision-making isn't that simple. So you can get a sense of direction from the referendum. And I think that's what happened with the Brexit referendum is um, even though it's a close, close vote, um, you know, there was a majority of the British, the, the, pe the people that voted in the referendum that supported one side rather than the other. Um, but what the actual form of what Brexit took is um, was entirely down to the, the kind of people um, who took that mandate and then decided how to implement it. And if you if you I don't I mean, if you remember back to the campaign, both sides described various forms of Brexit and what it would mean. You know, there's this thing about Turkey possibly joining and there being lots of, you know, lots of Turkish migrants coming to the UK. There was, there was stuff relating to, um, you know, the fact that we would actually remain a member of the free, tra free trade area. Uh, like the, the level of complexity, which you'd have to, to understand the kind of various treaties that are involved in um, associate membership of the European Union and the various bodies that kind of are associated with it is so complicated. Um, I think there's probably very few people in the, in the UK who understand it fully. Um, and they're probably involved in the negotiations, you know, you'd hope they understand it fully. Um, so asking people to make a decision on that, it basically ends up coming down to associating it with a few either issues or politicians or parties that you trust. So maybe you care most about immigration and you associate being a, mem uh, being a member of the EU with high levels of immigration. So that, that decides your vote for you. It may be that you're really worried about your earnings and you run a business that's dependent on being able to sell into the European Union. That decides your vote. Um, so actually, in the end, referendums become about, become about much more than the referendum itself. It becomes about these kind of um, either the loyalties that you have to a particular party or a particular politician, uh, and you kind of trust their judgment on something, or um, 
more more often the kind of issues um, that you are most concerned about, and those are kind of projected onto the question that you've been asked, um, possibly rightly, possibly wrongly. Um, and again, you, you know, we can get into the campaign and how how the campaigns kind of frame different things as well, because it's not as though people did that themselves. The campaigns were encouraging people to think in that way as well. That's actually quite interesting, and I, and I think I might actually come come back to that in a in a moment. I mean. As you say, it, it, I mean, to me, it sometimes felt like even the people doing the negotiations, I don't know whether it was that they acted ignorant about things until they'd gotten people's vote or if it was genuine, both both are quite concerning <laughs> to me, but it actually felt a bit like even they were going, oh, no, Ireland, we had, you know, what about, like, we hadn't thought about that or whatever, you know, even the people sort of supposedly more informed than we are. Um, I mean, I guess you might have slightly kind of, I, I feel like I've felt a hint in your answer as to this, but do you, do you then think that referendums maybe in this maybe this referendum in particular was actually or are they actually a productive or responsible way of making democratic decisions in a society like should we can we even go to people with what is perceived as a simple vote when maybe nothing is ever that simple I think I think you have to be careful about using refer referendums, and I think that's particularly the case. I don't want to get too technical about this, but some systems are set up to incorporate referendums. So um, there's certain countries where the way they've designed um, the way the political system works, referendums are built into it. And because there, there was a problem, I don't know if I mean again, this is um, going back into kind of recent history, but there's a problem where you have like uh, the referendum result. And you have a parliament that disagrees with that referendum result, like in general, as in if you ask parliament to vote for Brexit, there's not a majority for Brexit. Um, and then you have another parliament in 2017, which again, the composition doesn't support a single form of Brexit, so they can't reach a kind of position on it. And it's only until 20, it's only by the time you, um, you have the 2019 general election that you end up with a majority that will support a form of Brexit that's probably different to the Brexit that those who voted for Leave in 2016 had in mind. Um, so fitting together a referendum with how we actually make decisions in at the national level in the united kingdom didn't it never really fitted together that well um and i think you end up with that problem um when you try and in, insert this kind of method of making decisions into a system where where it's not not designed for it um it doesn't mean that forms of direct like there's lots of benefits to direct democracy i think that's the, i think that's the kind of challenge with this is um no one wants to be against democracy and I think that was the way the kind of those who were campaigning for a closer relationship with Europe or campaigning to have a second referendum or things along those lines ended up being boxed in sometimes, at least depending on who you're listening to, as anti-democratic or opposing the kind of democratic will of the, of the British people or the, the, you know, the people of the United Kingdom. So um, I think that I think the challenge is ba basically how you design the referendum process and um, also what issues you have referendums on because so many decisions are made every day um, in relating to people's lives by politicians and civil servants. Um, and there's only a very small number that we're given a vote on um, in terms of referendums. And generally they seem to be the things where politicians, I, they seem to be things which are kind of structural and are to do with the constitution. So it's like, should Scotland should be independent? Should Wales have a, uh, a national assembly? Um, are you happy with um, the Good Friday Agreement um, in Northern Ireland or not? Um, these kinds of things. Um, to give them a kind of legitimacy and to make sure that you have the consent. Generally, in those cases, it's of a subgroup, you know, it's of like 
does Wales agree to this? Does Scotland agree to this? Is this is this what this, this group of people want? Because you'll never get a majority in Westminster for a for Scottish independence. Like it's unlikely, right? Um, so that that's the kind of rationale. But the rationale for a, a referendum on um, EU membership or not, and you know, I know we had one in 1975, and then we had another one. Why we needed it then? I don't know. It was it was to do with the kind of internal politics of the Conservative Party, as far as I can tell. It's it was it was. David Cameron trying to manage people within the party um, and just more generally in, in, on the kind of uh, right of British politics. Um, but there's lots of things you could, you know, you could have referendums on if you wanted to. And I think I think that's I think that's the kind of key question is who decides when you have a referendum or not. Um, um, and, and often it's actually I think it, it, this has certainly happened in the Brexit case. It's a way not of responding to a demand from the British people. If you look in the polling data, most British people didn't have a strong opinion on the EU in kind of 2014, um, before this kind of bubbled up and before the campaign really focused people's attention on it. People didn't have strong opinions. I mean, I didn't have particularly strong opinions before that point. Um, I, you know, you had a, you, you had a sense of what, uh, you know, you I think you had a general feeling towards it, but you wouldn't have felt strongly one way or the other, most people. Um, and the government managed to actually, at the time, the, the, the kind of way the Brexit referendum panned out is people felt more strongly about their leave or remain identities after that than they did about um, party political identities. So, so that, and, and that kind of has reshaped since then who's voting for which party quite strongly. You know, you've ended up with quite a lot of people who never, previously never would have considered voting Conservative, now voting for the Conservatives. Um, that just never would have happened before. Um, so yeah, I think I think in that way it's been quite a clever. Um, it's it's definitely worked out to the benefit of the Conservative Party that they've had this referendum, um, at least for the short the short term. Um, but yeah, I I mean whether it's productive and responsible, I just I, I think it comes down to that question of how does it fit with the way you normally make decisions and how do you decide when you do them or not? Because otherwise it just seems fairly arbitrary and random and down to the whim of whoever's in power at that given uh, moment in time. That's really interesting, Ralph, actually, this idea of like, as you said, some systems are better set up to have referendums in the first place, um, which is actually not even something I'd given like a huge amount of thought. And, and I don't know, can you think, are there any systems you can think of like, as we speak, that are better set up for referendums that we might know of? The Swiss example is the one that people always go to because they've got a really like unusual constitution where um, an individual citizen has a lot more kind of rights to direct representation than in most other kind of democracies that have been you know established and and kind of um, it working for a long time um, and a lot more issues are put to kind of uh, you know like can they have cantons so like like we have. Uh, local councils they have cantons um and a lot more issues are put to referendums in those local areas um the I mean, in the us again at state level you have a lot more things that are decided so for example um legalization of marijuana in the us there's lots of states where it's now legal which has been decided on a state basis through a referendum um and that happens with lots of different issues um so where that's the case and you have people are used to thinking in that way um and to voting in that way um, there are problems with it because the more difficult you make political decision making, the more you end up filtering out uh, underrepresented or groups who are kind of, um, I guess, um, 
have more on their plate basically so if you're thinking about um how you're going to earn you know how, you, how you're going to pay for your food or your your kind of um your bills at the, at the end of the month you're probably not thinking about politics every day um except in that kind of more immediate sense but you're not thinking about the you're not thinking about the political system mm-hmm. and so if you have a list of um you know two national votes so you know yeah if every year you've got to think about 10 referendums you've got to be thinking a lot about politics um to actually come up with coherent and most of the time people will opt out rather than make a decision that they haven't thought about uh, or haven't had time to think about um so i think that's the kind of downside of direct democracy is it's kind of exhausting if 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 everyone had to answer if everyone had to make a decision on every policy um there would just wouldn't be enough time which is why we end up with kind of a form of representative democracy so you basically delegate that decision making power to your mp um there are problems with that i mean for sure uh there's no there's, yeah there's no way saying that's a that's a perfect system um but it shows that you can have representative democracy and um uh, referendums working in tandem i guess the only other example i would give in terms of where this has worked quite well and this touches i know you've looked at citizens assemblies um previously in this kind of series and you can have a, a system where i think the in british columbia they did this for deciding um what kind of voting systems to, to go to because i think they had first past the post and they, they had like various options in terms of thinking about how they might uh, vote in the future and um they they did a citizens assembly to basically come up with the options and then had a referendum and the results of the citizens assembly were kind of public so people could engage with it and see what was happening but the citizens assembly didn't have like binding decision making power i think that can work really well because it means that it's almost like people are doing the thinking for you and you can see it in public and you can go actually i agree with that person you know i agree with the position that that person's taken and it means that you don't rely on i guess a more kind of uh, short term decision making um, which I think with the Brexit referendum, you actually ended up with people, quite a lot of people making decisions towards the very end of the, the campaign period, where maybe it might have been a more emotional, uh, like a more fearful or a more optimistic response, rather than necessarily one that was um, based on having thought through all of the different possible considerations, which I think you get when you have a kind of national level citizens assembly um, of people who look and are like you, you know, like a good representative sample of the, of the population um, talking through the issues. So I think that I think that's how it can work well, basically. I mean, that was literally one of the things I was going to ask you, whether you thought that there were other ways of making these types of epic decisions um, other than just majority rule and, and you know, a one vote thing. And I, you know, when we had our um, our first um, episode on democracy as a whole, as a kind of philosophical concept, we um, also learned about, you know, um, a system where you might again delegate your vote to an expert as in not just your mp but in every particular vote you could possibly say you know i could say well ralph is way more informed on this than i am so i'm going <laughs> to ask him to vote for me but you know as a, as a whole other example of which i thought was an, you know interesting as well and you spoke earlier about people not getting manipulated and actually you know you've hinted a lot throughout this interview about um you know is it emotional or is it based on things that people have knowledge of and were the campaigns run in a way that made them emotional and actually you know you even sort of suggested that maybe even planting the seed in people's minds that they should care about brexit one way or another was done first and then Mm. people were asked to vote on it so there's actually so much there in terms of the i mean maybe literally the manipulation that can take place with a population especially if education is lower on certain issues and our guest um, in our citizens assembly episode said something around how citizens assemblies will allow us to focus on truth rather than party politics or whatever which again I thought was a really interesting way of 
this idea that there could be truth in a in political like you know in in in, in a democracy and i think with brexit that was one of the things that struck a lot of people was actually it felt like there was no such thing as a list of facts that we could take still make an, a personal decision about how we felt about those facts but never never did there seem to be a list of facts that we could go with um so i mean ralph you said a lot of things that i kind of feel like <laughs> I could pull in a lot of different directions but in that case i guess what do you think maybe are some of the things that we could do within the society we do have, I guess, without maybe overhauling the whole thing, you said nobody wants to be against democracy. It doesn't seem to be that many people are going, let's scrap democracy altogether. <laughs> um, what could we do either via, via our formal education system or otherwise maybe even, you know, is it the introduction of more things like citizens assemblies, um, consensus decision-making, et cetera, to kind of allow our public to make more informed democratic decisions? Yeah, um, I mean, so just on the point around levels of support for democracy, I think there's a there is an ongoing debate on on that, particularly in um, some I guess some of the countries that have been democratic for a long, uh, a relatively long time, um, where there's some evidence that younger generations are becoming less. Um, but there's this idea of democratic deconsolidation, which is just an academic way of saying some people are less into democracy than they used <laughs> to be, um, and. I think, I mean, again, it seems to be young, younger generations, part, maybe because, I mean, there's all sorts of arguments for why it might be, but maybe it's because they see the benefit less or they have less experience of the alternatives um, where maybe if, you've, if you're, you know, um, you've lived in or you've come from a country that has been less democratic or you, um, like if you're older, you've seen um, in Europe, you know, uh, either either kind of communist or fascist countries and you have a sense of what living on un living under those regimes is like um then um then you're kind of a bit more keen on democracy um which has lots of flaws but it's you know there's there's the kind of quote that people always trot out basically but you know it's it's the best we've got at the moment and there are ways of making it better <laughs> um i think i think the challenge i think the challenge maybe the citizenship curriculum faces it approached it in a in a way as an academic subject um so kind of teaching people facts around, um, you know, registering to vote, the different levels of governance, all this kind of stuff, which is like, I know that this isn't how it was taught often and teachers always find a way of making stuff interesting. Um, you know, good teachers always find a way of making stuff interesting. Um, uh, but I think like the, the, within psychology, there's this kind of, there's, the, the, um, there's a model of behavior change, which is around capability, opportunity and motivation. And I think, there's probably not enough on the motivation around why democracy is important and why voting, like registering and voting is important. Um, so you can tell people how to do all those things, but they won't do it unless they know why they should do it. And, and, um, and they, they really feel that. And that's why I think that's why this idea of emotion in politics is kind of interesting because um, emotion in politics isn't always bad. You know, the reason why the reason why people engage in politics is that they feel um, like they want to change something. Maybe they feel angry about something. Um, and sometimes that anger is, you know, it's not, it, there's, there's things, there's ways it shouldn't go, you know, like I think, you know, the, the anti-violence norm in, poli in democratic politics is really important. Um, but emotion in politics is an important motivator, basically. I think the problem is where, um, as you say, people are kind of misled or possibly, um, like the emotion is misdirected, um, 
And one major issue that I think has emerged in the last 20 years is how, um, uh, how most people get their information and how that information is kind of regulated, particularly relating to politics and around um, kind of the campaign period, where there's almost no real regulation of um, kind of adverts on Facebook or Twitter or wherever it is that people are getting their social media content from nowadays. Um, uh, so you can, and I think, I mean, it, some of this is overplayed, but definitely it's a concern how even now you could quite easily, um, in a way that isn't very transparent, mislead people and get them to vote in a certain way. Um, well, you know, the, the relationship isn't that direct, but it's the way you frame and get people to think about things as well as encouraging to, them to vote in a, in a certain way. And th there just needs to be, that that's something which just needs to be much more tightly regulated than these new legislation because you know it's so tightly regulated on tv on radio what you can do and just not at all on um the internet and it's crazy because most people get particularly i guess younger people get most of their information from these you know different online platforms um and it's just yeah that, that's an area where there just really clearly needs to be uh, much better regulation i think um of where the money's coming from and what it's being spent on and and the messages that are being um sent um, and so I guess sort of on that, Ralph, I mean, I mean, that's obviously done by, well, maybe not obviously actually, but that sounds to me like something that's done by corporations. So perhaps our private sector, maybe more so than done by our um, public sector or our, I don't know, I, even that's maybe debatable, but you know, that's one way that you might get misled by kind of corporate bodies. Then I guess there is ways that you can get manipulated and misled by our actual like public system our governments our political parties etc and you know maybe these days those lines are also not clear enough but um is there anything in our systems at the moment which you feel is deliberately designed to disempower certain people politically um either by a, either by actually actively excluding them or just by keeping them misinformed over emotional easy to manipulate etc like is that do you think that's accidental or do you think it's potentially built in if you look at how, um, I guess, so, like social media, but also just conventional methods um, are being used. So like the, the US has got this kind of ongoing um, battle at various states in various ways of trying to basically make it harder for certain groups to vote. And that's been the case, you know, for as long as um, the kind of campaign for um for uh, civil rights has existed in the US. It's always been this ongoing uh, kind of conflict, um, but it's the, 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 the last kind of presidential campaign really kind of brought it to a head again. And there's a huge like delegitimization of um, different groups uh, right to vote and the fact that whether or not their votes count. I don't think we have anything like that in this country. It's not always the case, and there are there have been kind of dangerous signs. Um, various kind of people across uh, like track um, the democratic standards in countries. There's like various indexes of that, um, and the UK has been the US has been trending massively down as you'd expect <laughs> over the last five years. Um, but the UK is not, uh, you know, we're not going in a positive direction in terms of the kind of um, the quality of our democracy. Um, and that that lots of that relates to like how the Brexit process. You know, there were lots of things in terms of conflict with judges and stuff like this that that um, makes the yeah it, it worries people who kind of look at the quality of democracy basically. Um, but in terms of actual voting and people's right to vote, there isn't much. Um, the, the the government ha is bringing forward legislation at the moment that will change quite a lot. 
Um, and one of the things that I think campaigners are concerned about is uh, the need to have photographic ID in order to vote, um, which hasn't been a requirement. Um, and there's very little evidence that it will reduce fraud. There's very little evidence of kind of widespread voter fraud generally. Um, so there's not good evidence that is needed. And there's a concern that it'll exclude people because photographic ID costs money. Um, some people might not have, have access to it for a variety of reasons, but will but will still be eligible to vote. And so those groups, it's possible, will be disenfranchised by that. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely a concern. Um, I think the bigger problem is less one of kind of direct suppression and more just one of neglect where it doesn't really you know if you uh, if you kind of represent the interests of uh, the more powerful and more wealthy it's not really in your interest to encourage the less powerful and less wealthy to to kind of get mobilized vote um, engage with politics uh, and so i think that's what i think that's more what we see is a lack of investment and lack of concern in kind of um voter registration, voter mobilization, um, uh, like, uh, you know, initiatives where that could be something that the electoral commission and the education system has much more of a responsibility to do. Um, so like there's a kind of local infrastructure for registering people to vote is really, really quite, um, it's sometimes just one person in a local authority. Um, and that's, you know, I just think that's not enough, basically. If you're trying to get reach people who are quite far from political participation, the kind of, you know, the people we're talking about at the beginning who just don't know that much about politics, there's a lot more that could be, um, that could be done, uh, which would ensure just, I think, you know, a much more equitable outcome in the end, basically. It would make sure that everyone is able to have their say within the current political system. And so, I mean, you've mentioned a few things there already, Ralph. I mean, do you know, and I remember in the like last um, general election, there was like, there were homeless charities, like letting homeless people use the, the, you know, their addresses to register them because you even needed an address to vote and arguably homeless people may have a lot to vote for, you know, a lot to want to change in, in society and then you can't vote without an address. Um, and, you know, so again, as you say, like, you know, are they these things deliberate or are they more like a case of neglect? Or, you know, there are countries where I believe maybe you're just automatically, you don't have to register to vote. There is like an extra step in that, right? So, you, yeah, 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 yeah. So can you think of any like groups or campaigns that are really actively working on this issue at the moment, like that people could check out? So, I mean, I guess the challenge of this is, what do you do outside of the election period because it's like so much of it ends up being focused around the next general election and politics is so like electoral politics is so um, cyclical in that way um, but the national voter registration week and then the local voter registration weeks have been really good and they're run by um, they're run by kind of local often run by or invol involving lots of kind of local campaigning charities who work with different um, groups who are uh, I guess further from um, political participation. I know that Hope Not Hate have been involved in the one in London and, in, and particularly in engaging because we now, following Brexit, we now kind of have a new um, uh, uh, like migrant population that we didn't have before, as in um, uh, EU people who are kind of EU citizens, but for whatever reason were eligible for British citizenship or haven't applied. Um, so just ensuring that they're registered and voting in the elections that they're able to vote in. Um, I mean, yeah, there's there's a few in terms of kind of what's happening in schools. I know there's the the politics project, and then um, uh, I've also it was a few years ago, but um, 
uh, I kind of did some work with the Advocacy Academy. I kind of was one of their experts talking about something. And they um, they seem to be doing really good work in, in terms of, I guess, more developing the the kind of disruptive leaders of the future. Um, but I think... I think there's I think there's various things that can be done across the piece, and one of those is providing um, a place for uh, teachers of citizenship or those who are kind of doing citizenship type work for that to be incorporated throughout the curriculum as well. So I think that's what the politics project is doing is providing resources and 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 training teachers um, so that it's it's less of a it's not just you you know you've kind of got a network to work with where um, where that's kind of had less emphasis within the national curriculum and Ofsted's framework. It's just making sure that that support is there. So, I mean, I guess the difficulty is if the policy is in the right place, a lot of this would be a lot easier. Um, and if if it was incumbent on um, the Electoral Commission to, to do a lot more around just making sure everyone was registered, as you're saying, it basically being a legal requirement for you to be registered to vote, um, then it wouldn't require so much effort from people working in local communities. But I mean, I guess until we get to that point, they're doing really important work. So yeah, th those are the kind of ones I'm aware of. But I've made this steer into academic work now. So, so much of what I'm doing is is reading research all day rather than doing anything particularly practical. But yeah, that's... No, I, I was out in um, universities and, and schools registering um, young people to vote in the last election. And then we had this issue where a lot of them thought that that was it, like as in we registered them and they kind of thought then they'd voted. So then you had to explain to them, right. like, I was registering you and now you still need to go and do this thing off your own back when I'm not here, like in a few weeks time or whatever, which was anyway, that's the level to which, you know, the, the, the misinformation is there. And I mean, I'm an EU citizen and would say I come from a politically very informed environment, but because I knew I couldn't vote in general elections, I actually genuinely didn't realize I could then vote in local elections. That took me right. a while yeah, to yeah. figure out. And I had a flatmate, you know, years back when I first started in London, <laughs> he practically like kicked me out the door like half an hour before closing time when we had to vote for the <laughs> London mayor. And she was like, you can vote for the London mayor. Like, and I just, I was like, oh, I, I didn't realize. So it is quite- Yeah, um, it's confusing. It's a total patchwork. It doesn't really make any sense, but that's that's how it is. So yeah. Yeah, exactly that. Um, well, so, okay, so Ralph, those are some projects. I mean, I guess just individual people listening, like just anyone who's not themselves a part of a project, um, if mm. people feel passionately about this issue, um, what would be any, any low hanging fruit, any easy things people could start doing? I mean, yeah, I mean, we've talked about, it's, it's hard because I think the whole thing about vote, as you're saying, vote registration and voting is because because of the way the political system works it's kind of inherently it's quite unattractive um it's like you know it's it's a thing that doesn't feel that uh, cool um, um but i think it's so important of uh, you like i guess most people listening to this will be interested in engaging politics um but i think the key thing so they're they're quite likely to be registered uh, you know to have registered possibly um but i think the key thing is to encourage encourage others to register and to get involved in those registration campaigns because i think if people can see that other people like them are interested in politics and um uh, and, and particularly like the importance of voting explaining why voting matters to them um that will that will be something that will encourage behavior change um and encourage people to to get involved in in voting something else i think can be like a citizen-led response to um the, you know the fact that it's it's kind of quite wild west at the moment in terms of political advertising online is i, I know there's at least one if not two campaigns where people can uh, report and kind of share the advertising that they've seen because often 
there won't even be a register of all the adverts that have been put out by a given campaign during um, like the, the election period or whatever it is. So that's something where people can make a big difference by doing something relatively small, actually. If you're just on Instagram and you get an advert, you can go, this is why this is what I was shown. Um, and that means that researchers and people who kind of want to hold these people to account um, will know, you know, will get a sense of what different messages are being put out. Sometimes those which are probably certainly unethical messages, <laughs> possibly steering into the illegal or the, you know, the kind of untruthful. Um, uh, and I think social media companies are increasingly uh, responding to pressure actually um, on this. I mean, you saw that when with the kind of storming of the Capitol where eventually both Facebook and Twitter were like, okay, we need to probably get Donald Trump off these, off these platforms uh, before it's too late. Um, I think, I think that kind of um, pressure from users will mean that those, those public spaces, which are increasingly the places where people discuss and, and engage in politics um, will kind of clean up their act a little bit more and, and recognize their roles. They have, they do have to take on more of an editorial role, even though that's difficult. Um, so yeah, I think those are the things, those are the things I'd encourage you to do. I mean, also consider getting involved with, with kind of formal politics, because it's, I think it's, it's always difficult finding a party and then engaging with a, with a political party, but for the time being, they are the ways in which politics is done in, in Britain. So it's always, I mean, if it's something that you are possibly interested in, then have, then have a look at it. But, um, if not, then just engaging with just getting people to vote will make a huge difference to the, the kind of the inequality that we see currently in this country. Yeah, for the time being, they are our kind of main um, ways of engaging in politics, which I think um, brings me on to my last question, which we ask everyone that we speak to on this <laughs> podcast, but when, if ever, do you think your work will no longer be needed? Um, yeah, so this is an interesting one because I think where, uh, when it comes to, um, you know, uh, I guess campaign work or work that has a social goal, the aim is always to kind of make yourself obsolete and, and to kind of get to a point where you, 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 you know what the problem, the, the problem of society you're tackling is and, you've, and it's been addressed and that you've set up a structure that means that you, um, the kind of the effort that you, you and your organization were making is no longer there. It's kind of not what I'm doing so much anymore. So um, I think, I mean... You're allowed to keep going, Ralph. Yeah, I think, I think, I think politics, I think one of the things that's, like politics is one of those things that's never solved in the sense that it's basically the way that we have of, solve, of, of addressing society's problems. And society will always have problems, unfortunately. Like it's, it's just probably, it's just what's going to be the case. So there'll always be, I think there are much better ways of doing it than we have at the moment in terms of making sure that more, um, people are better uh, represented um, and th there's lots of changes we can make. I haven't mentioned the voting system. Changing the voting system would have a huge impact. Um, but in terms of the work of research, I mean, the essence of that is that, uh, you know, the production of knowledge is always needed, basically. <laughs> so you're always trying to find out, you're always trying to understand people better and understand why they vote the way they do. Um, it does also sometimes have a practical purpose, so that's good. But in, in, its, in its own right, I think it's a thing that's worth doing. Um, so I hope, you know, I hope in 100 years people are still studying voting behavior, basically. So in a way... Uh, I mean, I'll, you know, I'll stop doing it. I'll stop doing it at some point, but I hope it will always, um, I hope it'll always be there. But I do hope at the same time that we get to a much better place politically um, within the next generation, because yeah, it's just been, the last 20 years has been pretty, um, pretty difficult, I think. So, Fizeo, what did you think of that? I mean, as always, like we just, I don't know, just people with so much 
subject knowledge it, it's it's great really <laughs> but yeah what do you think <laughs> yeah I mean our last reflection of the season and I think even before we go into the specifics of this episode what I was just struck by even just listening to the introduction to Ralph was how much knowledge we've had access to this season um in your intro you kept saying and prior to this he did this and prior to that he did this <laughs> and I was just like wow we really have been lucky with who we've got on this season and um all of the levels, different levels of um, knowledge and access and things that they've been able to share with us. So feeling very lucky in that sense. And on that note, um, I think this episode really showed or wrapped up nicely how interlinked everything is um, and how reliant on one another everything is. Um, And it really displayed for me anyway, what people mean when they talk about sort of systemic injustices and systems um, and how all of our systems are sort of designed and how they interlink from the governmental systems, the education systems, all of these things. Um, And I think Ralph said something about, it's less about direct suppression of people and it's more about purposeful neglect of people um, and how our systems are sort of designed to work in the interest of those who are powerful and to maintain that power, not necessarily through very obviously suppressing people, but just by neglecting to make any changes to the status quo and to the sort of inequalities that mean that our systems are the way that they are. Yeah, definitely. You know, like, you know, even when Ralph mentioned the Electoral Commission, you know, yes, it's independent, but then it's set up by Parliament, right? So how, you know, you, you set up something to regulate yourself and, and what does that mean? Or, you know, you have an education system that's meant to educate, you know, young people on democracy, but it is a state-funded education system overseen by our governments. And so, yeah, it, it's like a, it's really hard to know, like, it's almost like, you know, you know which Jenga piece you pull and everything kind of, you know, for everything to kind of come crashing down but um I was really um you know in line with that really interested by what Ralph said about you know maybe it's less a question of whether referendums are kind of good or bad or are they responsible or irresponsible and more about if we don't have a system that's kind of set up well to hold referendums you know maybe it's in theory it's not a bad thing to go back out to people and go this one decision we do want your input on you know we don't want to make it all by ourselves but actually you know have you got the education so that when you go out to people with that one decision they know how to make that decision is there ever a such thing as just one decision right Ralph said you know um, Brexit became about people's feelings about their jobs about you know immigration etc so is it just one decision you know can it ever be that simple and you know he mentioned Switzerland as a place where you're you're giving direct democracy more regularly to people at local level so it's a bit more normal but here if Mm. it's this random thing that maybe happens every I don't know 20 years or something then does it work like do they fit you know do referendums fit within the system we already have Mm. yeah yeah I guess again it comes back in a roundabout way to education, doesn't it? And Mm. I think Ralph put it really powerfully towards the beginning of his interview when he spoke about education essentially being a means to avoid mass manipulation. And I Mm. thought that was an interesting way of putting it because he he spoke about um, referendums, like you say, in essence, being a good thing, a good way for everyday citizens to influence and access decisions, but also that 
because of our systems and the way things are set up currently, they're often used by those in power to reaffirm their beliefs and give them legitimacy in a way that they wouldn't otherwise be if they weren't um, if they weren't done in this way. So essentially people are using them to get consensus around things that people might not have necessarily even thought about. And I thought, actually, you're right, because when he spoke about leave and remain identities being now stronger than party politics identities and um, even dictating what parties people now um, ascribe to and align with, I was like, it's true because, okay, um, before Brexit, I had had interaction with the European Union. I I studied abroad. I had travelled, all of these things. I would never say that I strongly identified (laughs) either way. Um, And if someone had asked me, I probably would still say, what I ended up voting for and what I believe now, but I never felt it as like an identifier of who I was, but Mm -hmm. very much now it has become that. And I think um, the idea that a gap in education and an oversimplifying of issues actually can be used to manipulate is um, a really valid one. And it's it's actually something that I think over the course of um, this series, I've slightly adapted maybe not changed but adapted my mind on in terms of who's responsible for the education and how do we ensure quality in the Mm -hmm. content of our education because I think originally because of my experience of schooling um when I was in the schooling system around a decade ago now um I was really wasn't a fan of the curriculum because I saw the limitations of it and I saw how it felt that we were being limited in what we could learn and how we could explore things and how we could show our learning. But actually, the more we have these conversations, the more I'm thinking that the absence of a curriculum actually makes it more of an unequal system in terms of the luck of the draw of who you get. And Ralph Mm -hmm. spoke a lot about um, the idea of citizenship education being taught was a really good idea but the fact that there were so many gaps in what that should look like has meant that it's gone by the wayside so actually maybe having a stronger curriculum with more like stringent rules on or stringent guidance on what should be taught would be have more strength to it um yeah which is something I never thought I would advocate for (laughs) (laughs) no I mean exactly and obviously like you know unfortunately maybe not every teacher ends up being as passionate as Mark or have the headspace or time or whatever to sort of develop the kind of lesson plans that that we found that Mark did. And, you know, what Ralph, for example, also said about, you know, you can come up with a new policy on curriculum, but by the time you train a load of teachers up, right, Mm. in the next Mm. round of teacher training and they then get into schools and so on, these things are not going to happen overnight. And I think that's something we often talk about in this episode, right? The kind of a lot of our guests talk about change takes time. You know, we expect these quick results. We get frustrated very easily, but actually those, that level of change takes a lot of time to implement. And I, you know, I felt like Ralph touched- a few generations of people. Yeah. Um, And I felt like Ralph touched upon something that, you know, Loic did as well um, last episode of, you know, there you can, like there should be a way of teaching political subjects fairly kind of, um, I don't know, like unbiased and, and factually, you know, it, yes, you can risk, you know, brainstorm, um, not brainstorming, um, well, that too, but um, brainwashing um, students with maybe, you know, teachers' own I- ideologies. But if teachers are trained well enough and they have good enough methods and systems, like you say, then, you know, actually teaching a student, this is where you register to vote. This is what it means to cast a vote. These are the parties. Here's their manifestos just factually in front of you. You know, I'm not advocating for one of them. I'm just giving them to you. All of that is possible without being biased, really. Yeah. 
Um, and if coupled with that, we're teaching young people to have critical thought, even if they do come across a teacher that does try to impart their own views, hopefully they'll be armed with the tools to identify that and to mm-hmm. actually criti- criti- critique that and to form their own views on it. Because as someone who's been able to develop critical thought myself, I can identify when someone's trying to um, impart their views on me and I can listen to them and take on what I want to and dismiss what I don't want to. So mm-hmm. I also think, yeah, there there can be other ways of even safeguarding young people against that kind of indoctrination. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, one thing, like, you know, I think, again, as a lot of our guests always say, the solution is maybe a bit of a sprinkle of a lot of things, you know. So Ralph speaks both about definitely improving curriculum in schools, you know, definitely kind of, you know, finding, you know, having a stronger citizenship curriculum, but then, you know, also um, it being something that individuals teach to the people around them. He talks about um, calling out, you know, advertisement when you see it. He talks about sort of um, projects that are doing work in this area like you know again he's kind of like you have to tackle something like this from a lot of different angles um so that you don't end up in a situation where you just suddenly have a referendum it gets very emotive and and people vote way more on that emotion than the facts and again you know he does say and i think loik even said last week emotion subjectivity they're not bad things i mean they are what drive us as humans um but just like uh, Valerie said in, in our um, Citizens' Assembly episode, there maybe could be some way of at least still having truth. Like if you could find a way of it not all just being down to point scoring between parties, but actually, you know, she mentions that via Citizens' Assemblies, we actually might get to some sort of truth, like at least some facts that guide our emotions, right? Or limit our emotions, maybe let's say. Yeah, I, I'm still really, really um, interested. I don't know if interested is the right word, but keen on that idea and and exploring that idea and maybe even having an opportunity to test that idea because um, to me, that idea still seems quite radical, <laughs> the idea. And I think even with something like Brexit, it's a great um, example of the other thing that always strikes me when I think about Brexit is what counts as a consensus what counts as legitimacy what counts as a decision like where do we draw the line 49 percent, 51 50 50 39 like what makes it that enough people have decided something's right in order for it to pass but yeah the idea of actually there are certain truths if we just have enough education and enough time to discuss and share perspectives is something i think one of the things that has excited me most um over the series of conversations that we've had. Um, and the other thing that Ralph highlighted as his number one thing to take away from from this episode and the number one thing that we can all do is if you are not already registered to vote and also as well as your own actions, encourage other people to register to vote. Um, so we'll leave a link to how you can do that in the description. Um, and it's always on our link tree as well, actually. It's the first link we have is a link to take you to the page to register to vote. Um, In terms of other actions you can do, I would also really encourage you to listen to the whole series um, on democracy that we've done, because like I said, all of the episodes really interlink to one another. And there's so many different conversations that um, build on one another over this series um, from like Mona said, citizens assemblies to this one on referendums, to the one on housing we've had. Um, And I think even 
just listening to the learn sections of each episode will help you understand our system a lot better. So we'll link all of those episodes also in the description and everything else that has been mentioned, as always, we'll link in the description box below. Yeah, definitely. Because as I think a lot of our guests touched upon and Ralph did as well today, it's this it's also moving away from this idea that democratic participation is just that those times where you go vote. Um, and it's all the things that happen in between and the engagement in between. And I think, you know, even Ralph said, get a bit in, more involved with politics. And it was interesting when he said, you know, if people are literally trying to feed their kids, they might not be thinking about politics, even if actually the fact that they can't feed their kids is so political. Right. So, you know, thinking about politics in a different way and, and, and just engaging with it a bit more on a daily if, if possible. And yes, he mentions a lot of projects um, that we will link to, like the Politics Project, Advocacy Academy, you know, etc. So um, there are ways that you can mobilize around this, um, either in a little bit more of a formal way, but as Fizeo said, if, if nothing else, just maybe helping a couple of people around you register to vote, for example, if, if they haven't already. Definitely. Um, it comes back to our favourite phrase, doesn't it? Everything is political. Um, you can't separate politics from anything that we do. And I think that's a valid point as well, is that I put a lot of emphasis on schools um, and school being a place where we should learn these things. But actually, I think one of the things that we took away from the education episode is that schools have a lot of purposes and teachers have a lot of purposes and pressures. And actually, as a wider society, we should be reinforcing some of these things as well so that young people can learn these messages in in everyday life, in all facets, rather than relying on schools as the institutions where all of this learning should happen. So <laughs> one of the ways you can reinforce that in a young person's life around you is encourage them to listen to the podcast. <laughs> you can <laughs> share it with them. <laughs> you can also follow, subscribe, rate and review yourself. <laughs> um, and we'd love your feedback. Um, this is the last episode of this season, as we said, but we're recruiting ideas for the next season. So please, you can feedback on our Instagram channel. Um, or our Twitter, they're both at untelevised underscore TV. You can send us an email at talk to untelevised at gmail.com and the two is the digit two. Um, or you can check out our website and that's untelevised.co.uk and we have everything on that website from our videos, articles, podcasts, loads of things you can check out on that website. Um, so please, yeah, follow us, have a look. We're going to still be posting things in the interim between our seasons on our socials and our website so check those out um and yeah let's further the conversation because that's why we do this and that's what it's all about yeah definitely and as we said to you last episode was encouraged by a listener so you know your dreams will come true <laughs> um, <laughs> and um and you know actually um as we also mentioned you know in our media episode we have recently just um become part of a cohort hosted by um the Lankelly chase foundation as part of their independent news and media award amongst you know around sort of a dozen other um independent media organizations and so that's you know, we really look forward to kind of pushing forward with that. And hopefully by the time we come back for our next season, we'll be able to kind of maybe update a little bit about what's happening there, because the purpose of that cohort is partly to hold mainstream media to account. So we kind of hope to be able to do that. And we'd love your help with that. So, yeah, I guess little breather from us. Um, but we do look forward to speaking with you or speaking to you, I guess, <laughs> um, very soon. Yeah.
have a good one guys um let's keep our fingers crossed for some sunshine to see out our summer and we'll see you again when it's dark and rainy (laughs) (laughs) take care bye-bye take care bye